Welcome, everybody, to the Celebrity Hour podcast, where we're talking with celebrities, filmmakers, actors, musicians, composers on the show about their films, their albums. I'm Brian Kluger, and we have a very most excellent show today. We have a very awesome guest, the a, a legendary intercontinental champion of film, <laughs> camera work, editing, directing on the silver screen, all the way from New York, Harry Greenberger. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, of course, of course. As you could tell, there's a little bit of that pro wrestling coming out right oh, yeah. now. Yeah, I didn't realize anyone knew about my wrestling background. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that would be me. <laughs> So we're going to get we're going to talk about your films. We're going to talk about Staring at the Sun and your most recent amazing film Hereafter, amongst other things. But first, like in the movie Sound of Music, we have to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. So, Harry, tell me where it all began with you in film. Was it something when you were young and you saw on the movie? Was it like when you know, Han shot first at the theater and Star Wars. Where did it all begin for you in film? Well, uh, you you called it with your first guess that, uh, uh, you know, I, I loved movies as a little kid and went to all like the sort of the weird Disney things and Apple Dumpling Gang and all that, but just loved it the way every kid did, Willy Wonka, that kind of stuff. But then Star Wars was like a lightning bolt out of the sky for me. I, I was nine years old, 1977, the, that moment when Star Wars first comes out, you know, uh, it was, you know, there was unprecedented. There was no internet, but everybody was talking about it. It was viral before there was such a thing. And I couldn't get my parents to let me go at first, but I was just enraptured with the Greg Hildebrand poster that was hanging outside the theater. And I was like, whatever, I had gotten into Star Trek, of course, at that point, but I just wasn't prepared for what Star Wars turned out to be. And that moment when the Star Destroyer comes over the camera at the beginning of the movie, I you know, I forgot I was in a movie theater for the next two hours. And, and I, uh, after it, I remember asking my parents, like, what, wh you know, like, where did that come from? Who did that? Who made that? And they said, there's some guy named George Lucas. And it was like, he was the, I think they said he was the producer because uh, they didn't like many people. They didn't know the difference between producer and director at that point. And, um, and it became like a, uh, like a life's mission to find out like who is it that made that happen and I want to do that and then my dad showed me 2001 on cable like two years three years later and he said well this is I know you like Star Wars this is a masterpiece and so you know Star Wars made me want to make movies 2001 made me want to make films and I still I love sort of the both worlds the the fun fantasy you know so-called lowbrow and the you know, so-called highbrow. I love everything in between and everything below and above those. And just always wanted to be a part of making movies, telling stories. That's excellent. And oh my, nine years old at Star Wars, two years later, 11 years old, something like Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, mind blown. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> credit to my dad for thinking that I, you know, that I would even grasp 2001 at that point and i'm sure i didn't but it was it was enough to blow my mind certainly you know right right now after star wars did you or your dad um ever 
purchase or get access to one of those old video cameras that you put on the shoulder, made home videos? And if so, what camcorder was it? What little movies did you make? Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. I made a lot of stuff. My dad was always into technology and was an early adopter of whatever came along. He bought like the very earliest video game system that had like a Pong thing on it. And he bought, he bought a home video system before most people. We got cable before most people. He always just wanted to have the newest thing right at the cutting edge. Sometimes it meant we got the version that didn't wind up sticking, like, you know, beta, that kind of thing. But, Go beta. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but so, yeah, he had a, a video camera and he let me use it. And when he saw how much of an obsession it was, they bought me a little JVC camera. Um, and after, after using his for years, eventually they bought me the one, it's the very one that uh, Michael J. Fox's character is using in Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> the exact same camcorder. And uh, uh, I had a lot of fun making that. And my friend Glenn and I uh, just started making absolutely silly, intentionally stupid little movies, The Cardboard Killer, and uh, made little parodies of Rocky. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the scene in Cat People where Malcolm McDowell um, slurps up a piece of flesh from something he's killed. And we sat there with a video camera trying to imitate that with a fruit roll up, you know, cause a, a red right. fruit roll up and, and started trying to do effects and came up with our own, like we had an idea of get a, um, we bought a Tom Savini book about how to do special effect makeup. And we, uh, we got a syringe full of fake blood we made and had the idea that it would look like a gunshot if we just hit the plunger on it, aimed at someone's chest and it would spray out, not realizing that it would spray all over the walls of the room we were in. So, yeah, it got really experimental and we have a bunch of little old VHS movies that we made together. Nice. And do you, hopefully you still have those. I do. I do. They're, they're, they're not good, but they're a lot of fun. You know, we also like doing stunts. So there's a lot of video of us like doing a stunt, like forward roll down a staircase and, uh, you know, jumping on and off cars, that kind of thing. But these are the types of things that go on the bonus features of a Criterion release. <laughs> I, I, I would those. love that. <laughs> I would love that. It's, that's got to be fun for any director that's lucky enough to have that, to be able to like go into your little treasure trove and, and share that stuff. Right. So from there, you're growing up, you move to high, you go to high school and eventually Ithaca University. Did, mm -hmm. did that film passion, that film love, desire to make movies continue through high school or it was that when you started to like play music write music paint sculpt stories and all that uh I, I was doing all of that um but I was lucky enough that I had such a big high school they had a filmmaking class um in my high school and actually funnily enough those little real awards that are visible right there on my shelf i won five of them for my little high school film which was terrible <laughs> and, uh, but it was the best i guess in that class so uh i was probably the only one in that class that had like you know huge delusions of grandeur and was trying to make an epic in high school and everyone else was trying to get like you know an elective grade out of it and so i was i was gunning for those little awards those little plastic spray painted reels back there and um i made like a little a little film there. And then I went off to Ithaca College and uh, I, I, the only thing I was interested in was making films. So I, uh, my folks were kind enough and helped me find a college that had a film degree 
And, um, you know, I thought I'd go to NYU, but uh, they were right in thinking at that point that I was not necessarily ready to move from Butler, Pennsylvania to New York City at like 17 or 18. And uh, so they went to Ithaca College and I was lucky. I met a, a lot of great people, including the my editor who edited both of my features, Sarah Corrigan, brilliant editor. We went to Ithaca College together. We edited in the same room there and sort of bonded over our ideas about editing and um, and had some great professors who were really influential in my thinking and my approach to it, like Dr. Patty Zimmerman was a great, as she's still a professor there at Ithaca. She's, we're still friends and she's, she's just a terrific um, mind about film. Now going through high school with the film class and at Ithaca and studying film, I think teachers are really the key to success. Was there mm -hmm. a certain piece of advice you got from one of your professors or teachers that still sticks with you to this day <laughs> that really inspired you to like, yes, I'm here making this movie right now because I hear this still in my ear. Uh, I, I was lucky and I had great teachers um, who were inspiring, but it's funny. The thing that comes to mind is the one uh, I had a guidance counselor who tried to advise me against it. I uh, wasn't hearing it and just said, um, you know, it's, it's funny in retrospect. He, he said, uh, like, uh, you don't want to, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to, I want to make movies. I want to direct films. And uh, he said, you don't want to do that. You, Hollywood is all, um, all homosexuals and perverts and drug users. And I was just I, like, it, it, I lived in a very small town and um, his, his sort of shockingly bad advice uh, still rings in my head that it's funny that like, um, you know, at the time I just remember thinking, and what's, and what's, <laughs> what's wrong with that? And, um, but it was, I, I still think about the fact that like, uh, you know, that kind of advice could have sent someone away from it if they were hearing it from the wrong perspective. And um, if they believed that that was a terrible thing about Hollywood. And so I, you know, I heard him say that and I just remember it like it, uh, it redoubled my uh, hearing him say that sort of redoubled my commitment to to film, just thinking, you know, that sort of thing people talk about of wanting to prove them wrong. But definitely, you know, just any English teacher that gives fills you with a love of literature or storytelling had that in high school and was lucky enough in college that, um, you know, I got there and I thought that they were going to be. I thought everyone was going to be from coming at it from an artistic point of view. And I kind of wasn't ready for being drilled on all the technical things, which didn't interest me as much as the writing and the directing, but you know, you have to learn it. And so, you know, having someone sort of stop me in my tracks on arrival in college and kind of say this, uh, you're going to have to learn the basics. You're going to have to learn all these film fundamentals, starting with, you know, how a piece of film is made and that kind of stuff. And, and how production is done, how lighting works, and all the stuff that I I came into Ithaca College thinking I knew everything, and I left there uh, very sure that I still had a lot to learn, and that was a valuable thing. And and uh, learned a lot of film theory there, but I was lucky and got an internship between my freshman and sophomore year, working for a company in Pittsburgh uh, near where I lived, uh, working as a PA on uh, TV commercials, and then jumped from that into being a grip and jumped from that into being a camera assistant on those and then jumped from that into working on movies in Pittsburgh for years and years. And so I was lucky that I got the sort of grounding in film theory from Ithaca College and then got a, uh, a strong education 
from being as a camera assistant, you're right next to the director and you're right in front of the actors. And as long as you're concentrating and doing your job and pulling focus and maintaining the camera, it's actually an amazing film school because you're hearing the director talk to the actors and talk to the cameraman and talk about the lighting and the angle and you're learning how and why to move the camera. And uh, I accidentally backed into a tremendous opportunity. I had, no, yeah. That, that's I had great. No that's camera great. was the right place to be. No, that's, that's awesome. That's the, that, I mean, that kind of, I feel like echoes my story too. In mm-hmm. my freshman to sophomore year in college at University of Kansas, I was a PA uh, on a film called Slapper She's French. And uh, mm-hmm. it was, uh, I mean, I got that and then, you know, it just kind of led to more things going down the road. And I like how you said, like, you know, you learn film theory and maybe the basics at school, but actually diving into that deep end and being right next to the director, the actors, and just hearing the conversations, that's, I mean, that's a priceless uh, mm-hmm. education right there. And so you're doing that uh, PA work. And is it is it true? Because you mentioned Tom Savini earlier, who's like, you know, a man god of makeup and visual effects and movies. Mm-hmm. Tom Savini, um, AKA sex machine. Um, <laughs> he, uh, you, did you work in some form of capacity on his version of Night of Living Dead from 1990? Uh, I did, I did. I actually worked with Tom Savini uh, three different times over the years, but on on that, I hate to, this will be disappointing. Um, all I did on the, to- on the Night of Living Dead remake was I drove an equipment truck. I was absolutely at that point willing to do absolutely anything to be on a film set. And I got to be there and watch some stuff get shot, but I was one of the lowest low men on the totem pole on that. But then I got to work with him on, um, uh, well, I was there while they were shooting Monkey Shines, George Romero movie. Yes. I was doing commercials in the same building. I wasn't actually on that film, but I was working and he was so kind and Greg Nicotero and his team that were working with him were all so kind. They let me come in and uh, watch them doing their work and even I do a lot of even at that time I did a lot of little sculptings and I wanted to see if there was any way I could get a job as a sculptor so to their credit they were kind enough they let me and my friend we drove down from Butler Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh with a whole little tray each of our sculptures that we did and they said these are these are really good this is nice work you should pursue this but you know we're we're kind of at the point where we got all the sculptors we need on this they were very nice we were you know 17 18 whatever and but um, extremely nice guys. And then I worked on a movie that nobody remembers. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, Backstreet Justice. And Tom Savini did some uh, a bunch of gunshot effects in that. And nice. so I worked with him. I got to watch him work on set in that. And um, again, a very nice guy and very pro. It was a good cast of like, you know, Hector Elizondo and Paul Servino and Linda Kozlowski and uh, some other good people. And, and, but for me, the attraction was watching uh, Savini at work, just doing, uh, you know, doing squibs and other gore stuff. And, well, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the dream. And then, you know, yeah. doing work and growing up in Pennsylvania, you're in, um, you're, you're in the zombie maestro's backyard. So that's sure. cool. You actually got to kind of be with him or work with him a mm-hmm. little bit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, I got to know Romero a little bit on on, on Monkey Shines. Uh, I wasn't working on it. Like I said, I was just 
we were shooting commercials in the same building, but it's not a very big building. So the, I'd go from Studio A over to Studio B and I got to watch Romero do a, a casting session for a movie that didn't happen till later and just got to know him. He's a big, kind teddy bear of a man. It's like, it's funny. Those movies make you think he's going to be scary or, or creepy or something. And he was just a very kind, uh, kindly guy. Very nice. And, um, and uh, I don't know if you ever saw Monkey Shines, but uh, oh, yes, yeah, I got well, to I own that Scream Factory for sure. <laughs> yeah, I got to play with those monkeys. I guess you know, they, the actual capuchin monkeys they had on set. I got to, you know, uh, have a story that uh, may not translate on air, but uh, I can if, if yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. You don't have to use this if you don't want it. It's, to me, it was very funny. Um, uh, I you know, I was young and I'm on a film set. Uh, you know, it's one of the first movies I've ever been on the set of. And, you know, like anyone at that age, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to meet everybody and make every opportunity. And there, there was a young woman who was the monkey wrangler on the shoot. And she said, uh, you know, she had her little sort of safari outfit on and, uh, and she was, you know, she said, you should, you know, you can come down and see the monkeys if you want. So I came down to the little monkey room and, and she, uh, uh, you know, she started saying like, well, do you want to see what they can do? She started demonstrating and they were in the movie, they're helper monkeys that are doing things for paralyzed people and people with other disabilities. And so the monkey, uh, she was showing me, it would be like, you know, if the monkey's name was like Skippy or something, I forget the monkey. She was like, Skippy, like, oh, you know, turn on the light and he'd run over, turn on the light. He's now turn off the light. He'd run over, turn off the light and he'd say, now bring me a drink. Skippy, run over the refrigerator, come back. Psst pop it and hand it to her. like it was amazing and i just like and i'm joking with her about like well this is you know they're they're taking over we're gonna what are we gonna do the monkeys are you know they're, and you know it's like they had to tie a knot and untie a knot all this stuff is going on she's describing the program to me and um she's like are you comfortable he likes to jump up on people and so uh, i said sure i'm pretending to be comfortable i'm not at all comfortable with a monkey on me and the monkey jumps up on my shoulder and it's crawling around i, I already had long hair that long ago and the monkey's like swinging around on my hair, like, a, you know, like on vines, jumping from shoulder to shoulder. And I'm just trying to concentrate on talking to her um, and act like I'm totally cool with this. And while I'm not paying attention, I feel the monkey parting my hair and playing. And then I, you know, and while I'm talking to her, it all sort of goes in slow motion in my mind. And I, I, I see her go. <laughs> you know like oh no and then i look over and i see the monkey kind of like adjusting himself and like aiming himself and then i see like a little wiggling monkey <laughs> and she yanks him off my head right as i was about to get you know violated in the ear by a monkey on uh and uh you know and there's no keeping your dignity after that so i just you know i made my goodbyes <laughs> <laughs> you should just oh my goodness it's like it's like monkeys love me <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah i don't know why i'm just apparently so attractive but like i'll never forget like i just you know i could see him in my mind still like kind of swiveling his hips adjusting getting ready and like that delay was all I needed to avoid the terrible. I feel like this is an amazing short film in the making with yeah. like that slow motion shot of the person yeah. looking at you like. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it to this day, her just grabbing him off my shoulder all really fast, like you would, you know, a, a dog that was about to do something bad. And after that, you were still, 
I'm going to be a part of movies, but no yeah, monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's um, good. Uh, That's good. And is it also true before we get into your new film hereafter, um, you worked with Kevin Smith on Dogma as well as Jack Ketchum on Girl Next Door, which I actually own that movie and I love it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, it's funny. Well, Jack Ketchum, he didn't he didn't direct it, so um, uh, I think was it was it Greg? Um, trying to remember the oh, name. Oh yeah, of yes, yes, you're right. Yeah, but right, I, I didn't. I never actually met Jack Ketchum, but uh, I know he was around on set, I believe. But like. Uh, I did work on Girl Next Door. Um, my friend uh, Bill Miller, I believe, uh, um, did the uh, script adaptation, and my friend Andrew Vanden Houten um, produced it. And I, I keep thinking, I'm trying, I'm blanking his last name, Greg something. Um, a very lovely fella. Um, right. And for those of you who are listening, it, this is not the Girl Next Door um, the about the the family kind of friendly porn. Thing that happened in high school no this is completely different not family friendly at all but it's amazing <laughs> yeah it was a very shocking film and they had some trouble i know new jersey wanted to shut down the shoot and um they they went to great lengths just to make sure they were allowed to even make the film because it was dealing with a very shocking criminal case yes and, uh, but yeah it's a it's a very disturbing and uh, potent and alarming uh alarming piece of horror film work and yeah I, I did work on that and um and I, I worked on dogma um they shot some of it in new jersey and some of it in pittsburgh i worked on all the pittsburgh stuff and it was a lot of fun got to work with you know an amazing group of people salma hayek and you know ben affleck and matt damon before they were that well known and uh you know obviously silent bob and jay yeah <laughs> and, uh, no, yeah. that's great. You're, you're, you're building up your resume. You're working with some great talent. Mm -hmm. And that led you into, I guess, staring at the sun, which, you know, is award winning this, this film that you made. Uh, and then after that, or before that, right, you developed the story for Hereafter, which is coming out. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, um, it's true. I, uh, I wrote the script for Hereafter uh, long before my what wound up being my first film. Uh, I think I wrote the script around 2011, and we started into a process of making the film. And a whole bunch of as it as it happens in film, a whole bunch of uh, scheduling problems and you know just the complexities of the industry uh, made it so it was on hold for uh, over a year. I kept waiting. We were ready to do it. We had a great you know cast at the time and a lot of great resources in place and then the delay made me think well i'm going to make a smaller film in the meantime because i was itching to get a film off the ground at that point and i had done a bunch of music videos and i i uh, just felt like i was ready to make a feature film so i i finished a script that i had from earlier that had been laying around unfinished and made staring at the sun from there and then luckily when staring at the sun started winning some awards it became easier to get what became hereafter together and uh we got lucky and that's how that happened so with hereafter which was formally called uh fairway eyes right yeah, far away eyes far away right. eyes yes yeah, right in the back <laughs> um and it became hereafter mm -hmm. um it's this concept is so incredible to me oh, because you. i think it's kind of universal in every human to think about 
what happens after death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think this is such a sweet and darkly funny and uh, sci-fi fantasy element to what happens after you might die. And is that where you came from? Was, was there like any like research or a story you read that like, oh, I read this, I can maybe make a story about this or how did that concept come up for well, hereafter? What, what happened was, um, it's funny, I, uh, I had a, a breakup with a girl kind of like in the beginning of the film, not exactly like that, but I had a breakup um, where I had to drive home from the breakup and as I drove home from the breakup, I you know had a moment on the highway where I kind of thought like, well, I wasn't paying attention. I could have been, you know, if I got killed right now, I'd have been killed like right after a breakup, right when my heart's broken. And, and I started extrapolating from there, just thinking like, well, it's funny how the moment when you've had your heart broken is where your friends and your family start going. Well, you got to get back out there, man. You got to you got to find someone. And I thought it's funny that the pressure is at its highest right when your heart's too messed up to be the right person to be doing that anyway, you're actually not equipped for it. And so then I started thinking, well, you know, how do I make the stakes higher and how do I make it so, um, so there's kind of a gun to the character's head of like, you have to do this right now, even though your heart is messed up. And that's when I started, I was also thinking about how, uh, you know, if you break up after a long relationship, you're older than the last time you were trying to date, you start going back to the same places out of habit and you feel invisible there. You feel like, wow, this, this scene has moved on without me and I'm, I'm older. So this cool bar I used to hang out in, these aren't my people anymore. They're yeah, not. I'm the, I'm the old person at the bar. Right, now. Exactly. And I felt like, well, you're a ghost uh, at that point. And I was, it came, it started from a place of pretty abject loneliness and, and trying to be satirical about that. And the fact that the minute, especially when you're newly broken up with the world starts looking like, well, concert seats are in pairs restaurants are designed for twos or fours or sixes and and it really felt like the world is cruelly designed when your heart is broken uh, or if you're single for a long time which i was for a long time um the world felt like it was designed in pairs and i was sort of trying to make fun of how uh, how hurtful that can feel and it's funny right now the trailer has made people online get really pissed off at me thinking that I made a single shaming movie. Um, and it's like, no, 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 this was, this was written by a very lonely guy who was, I was, I was trying. And I, 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 my joke I've had since then is that's like saying planet of the apes is saying that the world should be run by apes. This was the predicament I was putting the character in was feeling painfully sing single. And, um, <laughs> and, this is not a single shaming movie. It's sort of a movie about how how hard it is to to feel like you can find love that's meaningful and uh, and reciprocated, and how how hard the world can seem to work to beat that out of you, <laughs> and uh, and also like I said, how how difficult that can be when you're when your heart is newly broken to feel like you can find uh, something. Uh, that's that's meaningful because also you you yourself aren't generally that qualified to be that person for someone else in that moment, and I and I wanted that to be the character's journey was to find out well, what would it take not just to find love but to be worthy of 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 it when you've when you've had your heart all twisted up. Right, right, and you know it's it's a fantastic story, and the cast you assembled is just amazing. Everybody from like Jackie Cruz 
to Andy Carl, mm -hmm. to uh, Alyssa Middleton and mm -hmm. Alex Hurt and yeah. uh, Florencia Lozano. And of course, uh, Michael Rispoli and Christina Ricci. I mean, that's kind of like an all-star cast of characters right there. Like- I agree. We got very, very lucky. <laughs> talk and to me about, yeah, coming together and like sending scripts out and just, I, I gotta imagine being an actor and receiving a script like this. It's just like, wow, just say yes, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope it felt like that to them. Uh, um, yeah, and we and we also to add uh, Nora Arnazadir uh, is in it from Army of the Dead, a brilliant French actress. Uh, she's terrific, and also Nikki James, who won a Tony for uh, for Book of Mormon, and Jeannie Berlin, who was an Oscar nominee. We got incredibly lucky with the cast, and a lot of it, of course, is thanks to Lois Drapkin, who's our amazing casting director. She did my first film as well, but um, yeah, we're sending you know you do it through agents basically and so uh you start to just kind of hear back who's interested or who might be interested and and uh it was it was honestly a thrilling process because uh you know one never knows whether the person might be um you know, i'm not used to it so i didn't know whether when people said they loved the script whether that was genuine or the way the industry works but um but the people we worked with were very convincing that they that they connected to it because you wind up on set directing them and they, and people seem to be pretty connected to the material and the and the characters and you know having having Christina Ricci want to do it having Andy Carl want to do it I you know I wasn't familiar with him until my casting director had suggested him and uh, I felt like that's obviously the crucial role in the movie you got to find the right person to play that character and my casting director knew him and my producer knew him from law and order and wisely more wisely than i was more wise than i was they uh they took me to see him on broadway in groundhog day and um and he was amazing in it and uh, we met with him in the dressing room afterwards and he'd read the script and he i was very complimentary about the musical that he was in just now and he was extremely complimentary about the script and very excited to wanted to do it and he had a lot of insight into it and had connected to it pretty deeply. And, um, and it just seemed pretty obvious that he was the right person for it. And he, he's great at the comedy. He's great at the drama aspects of it. And he's great at sort of uh, making those transitions, even in a, from moment to moment, some scenes go from comedy to drama very quickly or vice versa. And he's, he's terrific at those little subtle transitions and, and making them feel like they come from within and, uh, and an incredibly nice guy. Actually, everyone, not a, not a person on this film, not, there's not a single person on this film uh, in the cast or behind the camera that was just not a, we, we got lucky. It was, they say like, there's a no assholes policy on sets and we, we got lucky, you know, we just, we had just terrific and kind people from top to bottom. And, That's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's good. And Explain um, or talk about that dynamic from the writing process to actually shooting on location or on set. The perfect balance you made in your story with the, the comedic aspect and the very uh, serious and um, dramatic aspect of this movie because there's a little bit of both because i imagine when you're writing you're like oh this is going to be a good joke and then it happens and you're like oh that killed or yeah nope, we got to leave that out but 
writing a darkly funny movie such as this have you, you i don't know if you just comes natural to to you or if it just if it's something you have to go back and forth with um with this with deciding how to sort of balance those two extremes that happen in yeah well yes. i uh i knew from i knew from the beginning of the writing that it, i could feel that it was going to be like a uh, a lot of tonal shifts in it just uh, all over the place because I knew where I wanted to go with it and so I, I kept thinking definitely I'm glad I had made the other film first because I felt like I a lesson I learned from that is that uh, um, you could be on set and something is hysterically funny that you've discovered on set but um, you have to keep in mind the whole jigsaw puzzle that it's part of and you know, we had something really hilarious happen on the set of Staring at the Sun and we couldn't, there was no way to use it because that scene could not dare be funny because of what comes before it and what comes after it and what needs to happen. So I, I went into shooting hereafter, uh, constantly reminding myself, like, watch the tone, um, know where the tonal shifts are going to be and, uh, and remember, you know, sort of always be thinking about what scene you're coming from and what scene you're heading to where that character's got to be when he walks into the next scene. And, uh, you know, Andy's instincts are funny. He's a hilarious guy. Uh, but he also, uh, you know, we would sit and talk about it and he'd, he'd, you know, he would know sort of how much he should unleash, unleash his inner uh, musical comedy, essential nature. And it was fun those times when I could just say to him, like, this is this is a scene where you can you can just let that go. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's a few moments of that. And then um, but, yeah, it's 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 a tough uh, tightrope walk to do at times because, um, you know, but I think um, I think scenes, um, even the most dramatic scenes uh usually need some humor to temper them to make it so the audience wants to be with you through that and i think sometimes you know humor can make it so you the audience lets down their guard a little for the drama to sneak in after that like if they've just laughed with you they've they've opened themselves up to you a little they feel comfortable they feel like they're in the you know they're in the hands of someone but like in other words if you were to just have nothing but you know there's exceptions because like there's nowhere to squeeze humor into schindler's list or something but like there's um there's... But, there, but there is there is i wrote about that once <laughs> <laughs> oh you mean that there's that there is humor in there but yeah there's, yeah there's correct yeah. correct yeah i i think i wrote about the the funniest moments in spielberg movies which they're usually he's not synonymous with like comedy right but like one of them was schindler's list and it and it was um it, 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 and it was the belly? <laughs> well it was the moment i guess where um they're hiring for like a, a typewriter mm -hmm. and he can't he he only has to hire one but i guess it's like a pretty girl but everybody else doesn't look well so he hires everybody mm -hmm. you know at once and like in such a very painful movie to watch right. there was like that little comedic gold there or mm -hmm. even you know saving private ryan or something like that where they get the wrong private ryan which is genius right right yeah. funny yeah. but yeah no i i i like that you can go for that that extreme back and forth so well like that and i think it's earned in hereafter thank you, thank you. I, yeah. that, that means the world to me to hear because i was that was the biggest worry was that 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 you know 
that you can lean a little too much in one direction and sort of lose the ability to, to seesaw back to the other, or at least so quickly. And, right. Uh, yeah, you're, I forgot about the, the moment of levity in, in, in Schindler's List, list. so it's, that's a good example. But like, uh, and I think they probably thought long and hard about it, like, well, do we dare? Do we have the, or do we need it? You know, do we need to have a moment of levity here to let, to let the audience breathe? You know, like I always think about the, you know, the way the scene in Reservoir Dogs with uh, ear cutting, one of the ways it works is there's constant humor that lets the audience think they're about to be let off the hook, that it's not going to be horrific. And right. then- um, He turns so it into a musical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and in doing so, I think that's what makes it so brutally effective in the long run is he's tricked the audience into letting down their guard. Mm-hmm. Um, and repeatedly, like when, when, when Mr. Blonde leaves- uh, I felt our whole audience when I saw Reservoir Dogs, I felt the whole audience sort of breathe a sigh of relief when Mr. Blonde leaves the room for a minute thinking, oh, there's going to be, you know, we're not going to see what I was worried we were about to see. And then you find out he's leaving just to get something to make it worse. And uh, I, I always thought that's a little masterful bit of audience manipulation on Tarantino's part, trying to make it so, uh, you know, over and over you think you're being let off the hook as an audience and you're not going to watch something terrifying. And then the end when he does it, um, I think the audience has dropped their guard. Yeah. Oh, what a great scene. Uh, It's good. Is there anything um, that you got to do on hereafter with the camera that you've always wanted to do that you haven't yet until hereafter that you're like, Oh man, I got to put this in a movie. I saw this when I was little, I got to put, I got to use this camera technique or I got to do this in the movie. Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, I have to think through the film. Um, well, you know, we got to deal with a lot of effects, which obviously as a, as a, as like a star Wars nine-year-old, that was, that was fun to deal with. Although obviously it's, not maybe as much fun on set as it sounds like because it's uh, a lot of technical stuff and a lot of standing back and letting the the people who know what they're doing take care of that stuff with uh, very exacting measurements and things like that. Right. But um, uh, there were a lot of things where, you know, like the, the little moment on the, uh, on the trapeze, um just i always love things where you just let a moment of grace sort of happen on screen just a little little poetic moment of grace and so um cutting from the uh, cutting from a from the shot of the person on the trapeze to looking below and just sort of letting the music carry that image that's the kind of thing i've always loved doing and i got to i got to get that in there and um let's see what else just uh um, you know, I'm a lover of sort of letting a steady cam follow somebody through an entire situation uh, to the point where you can kind of let the, you know, let the backwards tracking motion and then forwards tracking motion sort of make the audience forget, hopefully, that there's a behind the camera and in front of the camera and make them just believe that we're with those characters in that physical space. And, you know, even just doing that in Times Square and doing that um, throughout the, you know, the apartment that um, that they wind up in, that kind of stuff really, you know, just sort of letting the camera tell the story, letting moments happen where, um, you know, where like the moment with the uh, where Nora has the two bottles, just sort of letting the camera 
tell you the story of what's going on between those two characters, uh, you know, what, letting the conflict shift to a moment of togetherness based on just the way they're looking at each other and the way you, you just watch, you know, his expression change and her expression change, getting to do that kind of thing. No, so not really as much camera trickery or um, any like sort of, you know, camera acrobatics, but uh, um, yeah, I got to do an awful lot of, it's all fun. You know, it's, it's fun to be, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a gift to be allowed to be directing a movie and it's, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing you pinch yourself while you're doing, even if it's the worst day of the shoot, you know, we had some really weird days where things, you know, things go wrong that you can never predict. And, uh, but um, even on those days, it's still, it's a, it's a privilege to That's be, good. To be doing good. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're making movies. That's that's, yeah. that's the best. Um, earlier, you mentioned Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And Star Trek appeared in Hereafter. I have to say, I was very excited, not only for the reference, but also for people who listen to the show and who know me. I DJ in and around Dallas, and my DJ name is DJ Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> <laughs> so when I heard it on the movie, I just like put my hands in the air. was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit that scene was originally a little longer. And uh, there's more about the Kobayashi Maru test in that scene originally. And, you know, the movie came in a little long. We always were trying to get us under, get ourselves under two hours. And so when you're trying to find things you can cut, it's easy for certainly for non-Star Trek fans to say, what about that long monologue about the Kobayashi Maru test? Because I believe it. I think the Kobayashi Maru test is a great, um, is, is a great analogy for, uh, for dating and for life and for love. And it's, you know, it's, it's All about an character. Yeah. It's an unwinnable <laughs> test. It's a test of your character. And, uh, you know, you, you're not expected to win. You're expected to, you know, have your character revealed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was willing to cut some of the meat out of that scene, but I was not willing to cut the idea out of that scene because I think it's important. And I'm curious, the actors who were involved in that scene, did they actually know what the Kobayashi Maru was or did you have to explain it to them? No, I, I'll, I'll be completely honest. And I don't think either of them knew that. And, uh, and Michael Raspoli is very, very game and uh and very much incredibly enthusiastic about making sure he gets the writer's intention and the director's intention and so he he made sure not only that did he learn the, the monologue the speech but he also learned what the intention was behind it so that he would be able to deliver it so authoritatively and so believably as somebody who deeply believed what he was saying in that moment and again that's why it's such a it's a privilege to be in the presence of people like him and andy and everyone in the cast, but like somebody that wants to, their only goal is to make it the way you dreamt it. Right. Uh, um, and Rispoli's a sweetheart of a guy and he, you know, he wanted to make sure he even pronounced it right because it's not, uh, you know, obvious phonetically from the page, but uh, he, uh, you know, and if, if it, if it worked for you, that means it worked, you know, because that's uh, you're, you're a fan. <laughs> for sure, no, it worked. I was very excited. <laughs> it was good. Um, and also, you know, we have to talk about the music of the film. I do a composer series on uh, the show. We have a lot of composers on. And I've got to say, 
holy shit, yeah. you got Joseph Loduca, Evil Dead Army of Darkness, and Angelo uh, Badalamonte, who's worked with like all of David Lynch, mm -hmm. basically Twin Peaks, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, crazy. Um, and they, you, you got this like tag team champions to come and do the music for your movie. And, you know, a young me who, you know, I think one of the best films ever made is Army of Darkness. <laughs> Just to have like these composers and stuff like that, and even David Lynch stuff to come work on your movie is just like incredible. So talk to me about the music of the film and getting these two composers to work. Uh, it was it was as you're as you're probably guessing. It was a you know a thrill of a lifetime to get to work with both of them and. Um, they're both, of course, really, really great guys. They're both real big lovers of film. And uh, what happened was um, all the while, while writing it, I knew that the music would be different from what I did for Staring at the Sun, where I had a, a terrific composer on that, who's a, a friend of mine, who's a, a, a sort of a, a many flavors of different kinds of pop and alternative music, got, you know, um, kind of, uh, a guy who can do anything, a guy named Aaron Lee Tajan. And I have some of his songs in this movie too. But when I was doing Staring at the Sun, I found myself thinking a lot about, I knew we were going to be doing Hereafter. And I thought, well, what would the music be? It can't be this kind of thing because it just won't work. So what would it be? And I just kept thinking, I want something with the the romantic and emotional sweep of like an Angelo Badalamenti. But who who on earth could I get that would give me that? And uh as we got closer to being done uh, in the edit, I just, I found myself thinking, you know, we had a rough cut and I thought it came out pretty darn good. And I reached out to Angelo and asked um, if he'd be willing to take a look and see if he'd, uh, you know, with the help of his, of his man, with, a, with the help of his manager, who was kind enough to allow me to talk to him about it. I just asked if I could show him the film and he said, yeah, come over to my place and screen it for me. And so I went to Angelo's house and um, screened it for him and his wife and his engineer. And they, they loved it. And he wanted to write a song for it. And, um, you know, which it was, you know, and from there we get the main theme music for the film. And he wanted, uh, it was, it was Angelo that suggested Joe LaDuca as a person to do the rest of the score. He said like, uh, they've worked together a bunch of times and we had the idea that Joe would sort of weave Angelo's music into it, where it worked as a sort of a uh, main romantic theme for it. And then, and then Joe would write his own score for the rest of it, because he's, of course, amazing in his own right. And, and that's what happened. We, uh, you know, Angelo had the idea watching the movie. He said, uh, there's a line of dialogue where the Angelo character, Michael Raspoli, says the phrase Mysteries of Life. And Angelo turned to me while in the middle of the screening and said, that's a great title for a song. Can we, would you do write lyrics? Let's write a song for, let's write a song for the movie called Mysteries of Life. And he asked me for lyrics. I wrote lyrics. And, um, and then, like I said, that beautiful melody, that haunting melody he wrote for that became sort of a main theme that's woven through Joe's score. And, uh, in scenes where I thought I had other pre-existing music, uh, Joe would step up and say, you know, I, I feel like I could write you something for that scene that's, you know, I know you love that song you're using there, but I feel like I could write you something for that scene that'll work even better. And I'd say, well, of course, I'd love to hear it. And he'd always come back with something stunning. 
And so it just gradually sort of developed naturally. And, and he, he wrote a beautiful score. He wrote beautiful themes for the characters. And even he, since he knew I wanted that sort of, the, you know, quirky slash romantic slash deeply emotional Angelo feel, he put a lot of that into what he gave us. And, and then Angelo and I were lucky enough to get Debbie Harry to sing the song that we wrote together. Yeah. And so that's, uh, you know, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you don't, you don't say no to that. And um, no, and she's, you know, she was extremely kind and complimentary about it and, and, you know, enjoyed the process and, you know, they were fans of each other, Angelo and Debbie. And, um, you know, that's another, just sometimes I think if you put in enough hard work, then sometimes a little bit of luck comes your way unexpectedly. And so making the film was a lot of work. And then, we had uh, ridiculous strokes of luck along the way too. Good deal, good deal. Yes, hereafter, uh, it's great. Thank you. Go see it. Let's get into some fun questions, shall we? Uh, okay. Well, first, well, first, 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 first. Before we get into fun questions, I actually have a serious question for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. A very, a very serious question. Um, what is the perfect guitar to play Grateful Dead on? And what's the perfect guitar to play ACDC on? <laughs> <laughs> I take it you can see behind me, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, uh, uh, yeah, I have a Gibson SG, which is, uh, that's, that's definitely Angus Young's, uh, you know, weapon of choice. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and that's actually, um, it's funny. Uh, that's, that's, I don't have it positioned there just for this interview. That's just, this is just the room that exists behind me, but, um, that, uh, do you know Ryan Adams? Yes. Yes. Oh, you yeah. worked with Ryan Adams on, um, Jesse Malin's, uh, the St. Mark's disco ghetto, right? Or- uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't know if Ryan is involved with that song at all. I've worked with Ryan and I've worked with Jesse Malin yes. and I, I, I directed the disco ghetto video. Correct. Correct. Um, and with Mary Louise Parker and Jesse and a bunch of other cool people, even Paul Bearer is in that, and he's in yes, yes, in Hereafter. Cool as hell video, by the way. Yeah, thank you. you. (laughs) Well, uh, I used to work with Ryan a lot, and we're we're good friends, and he's a great guy. And I know, you know, but like, um, he was kind enough to give me that guitar. That's his old guitar. He said he wrote the cold. He told me he wrote the Cold Roses album on that guitar. I don't know if that's accurate i have no you know i don't have a certificate of authenticity but he he's a he's a very kind and generous friend and he as is jesse mallon and he uh he gave me that guitar uh, you know probably like 15 16 years ago and then we played a show together um i played on stage with him and phil lesh of the grateful dead in san francisco uh um uh you can see it on the internet it's not it's, it's the worst show either of them ever played, but it was one of the greatest moments of my life because I had no business being up there, but I, um, and, you know, Jesse Mallon and Jacob Dylan were in the audience watching me. Oh and, yeah. Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was uh, adrift without a paddle and did not know how to play any of those songs correctly. Uh, and it's, it's actually kind of, it's a little bit painful, but a little bit funny to watch. You can see it on the internet, but it's, uh, um, before that happened though he gave me that guitar and it's a really nice uh you know gibson hummingbird 
wait, this is like huge. Like you got to go on stage and play with them. I mean, like, I can't imagine going on stage and like playing something like Terrapin Station. And you're just like, what? Yeah, I have yeah. an outer body experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was there helping out with the tour and um, and they wanted to just do a, uh, it was the end of a Ryan Adams tour and Phil on that tour would come to uh, most of Ryan Adams shows on the West Coast and just join him for a few songs at the end. And his son was doing something at Berkeley, so he didn't make it to the show that night. And so Ryan uh, was determined to still have it happen. It was the last night of the tour. And he said, let's just let's book a place in San Francisco. Let's find a place and we'll just set up. We'll sell tickets for charity. And so there was like 900 or 1,000 people there with the bought tickets. And um, they didn't have a rhythm guitar player. <laughs> and and I got there just thinking I was going to help out logistically. And, and Ryan said you're playing guitar when i got there and i said oh, okay what are we playing and they showed me the set list and i said i don't know how to play any of those songs and um and in unison phil and ryan turned to me and said perfect <laughs> <laughs> and you're and like oh what'd you say you're like oh god <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and I, but i thought like i would i would hate myself if i didn't try mm -hmm. so we got out there and i remember um uh ryan just said just watch me for the chords and uh and then he didn't play the chords he just he would he would play a little bit and then he'd play lead and i was so i was just lost and i remember phil lesh just leaning over to me as i was would play and just go e minor <laughs> or something <laughs> and i would think to myself for how long you know how long do we, you know what, what are you going to tell me the next chord? it was it was uh, it was a unique experience, um, and it was at like you know two or three in the morning, and I was uh, and I think everyone was just expecting much better. Um, nobody was mad at me, but uh, it was it was a bit of a train wreck of a show. But it was one of the one of the more enjoyable things I've ever experienced. <laughs> no, that's incredible. Okay, so that leads into the next question: What's the most thrilling, I guess, movie music experience? Both, I guess, both as a performer or somebody behind the camera or on stage and as a fan, be it, you know, seeing Star Wars for the first time in 1977 or being first row concert at A, B or C. Yeah, it's, I, I've been, I've had like a remarkably fortunate and blessed life musically. I've gotten to see almost all of the living people that I've ever been a fan of and gotten to work with a bunch of them too over the years. So I got to, um, I got the opportunity when Jesse Mallon, uh, did a duet with Bruce Springsteen. They recorded the duet and then they've made a music video and I shot all the behind the scenes stuff on both the recording of the song at Bruce's house. Oh, at the boss's house. My goodness. Yeah. yeah. And uh, at his home <laughs> studio. And then, and then when we went back to his house to shoot the video for it uh, with Danny Clinch directing, um, I was shot the behind the scenes footage of that as well. And I've always thought there's a short film in there. I have all this footage of the making of that great duet between the two of them. And I and, uh, want to put that together as a, as a little documentary short. But um, I got to sit there and film, the, you know, the making of, you know, the song and then the making of the video. And then I got to know, you know, Bruce a little and got to work, work with him on a few things since then. And that's as a Bruce fan, that's been a huge thrill and got to work with Bob Weir for some rat dog shows. Oh, wow. Got to play with Phil Lesh. Got to, it, the list goes on. Like, you know, I got to work with Jacob Dylan. I got to work with, you know, um, 
you know, uh, Glenn Matlock. I got to work with uh, Tommy Stinson. I got to like it's it's a pretty long list. We're, That's we're, amazing. Nora <laughs> Jones and I'm trying to think who else. Uh, James Ehan. Um, a lot of really, you know, uh, Donald Fagan. I've gotten to work with and be close to a lot of my musical heroes and uh, Debbie Harry. You know, that's a musical thrill I, I can't explain. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and then, um, yeah. And so do you remember kind of like your first concert that you went to when you were a kid or growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a late bloomer going to concerts because uh, I lived in Butler, Pennsylvania, an hour outside of Pittsburgh. And so I didn't get to see a concert till I was 16 and had a way to get to Pittsburgh. But so the first show I saw uh, was Jethro Tull and Honeymoon Suite at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. And because I had a friend from Germany who was you know, old enough to drive us there. And um, and that was mind boggling. And then I think if I remember correctly, my second show was Bruce Springsteen at the at Three Rivers Stadium in 1985, a year later. That's great. And um, and from then on, I became like a really avid concert goer. And I've seen, you know, Bob Dylan more than 100 times, Springsteen more than 100 times, uh, Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, that kind of stuff, a lot. We saw The Grateful Dead 16 times with Jerry and many, many, many times without Jerry, if you want to call that the dead. But Right. Dead and Co., I think, is what they're called. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, and so, okay, next question would be, um, and this, I'm not sure if this is true, but did you work with John Landis at all or get to talk with John Landis? I did. I did. I worked on Innocent Blood. I got to work the whole, oh, I think it was a, about a two month shoot. Um, that's great. Cause I got to sit down with him for an hour and just talk movies on camera. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's, and he's, he's one of, of the most fun great storytellers that has been around forever so mm -hmm. i'm curious if that came out when you worked with him absolutely yeah i could I, I have pictures of myself on the set with him even and and his dp on that was mac alberg who shot a bunch of his stuff including mm -hmm. thriller with him yep and we had an amazing cast on uh, he had an amazing cast on that and he had don rickles on that shoot and he had started as a pa on on um uh kelly's heroes with when Don Rickles was in the cast. So he, yes. he had that funny thing of having jumped aboard in his, in his youth uh, on a big film that Don Rickles was on. And then years later, come back and hire Don Rickles to work on his shoot. But yeah, I, I don't know why, but for some reason he sort of, he took me under his wing on that shoot and talked to me That's a lot cool. about film and asked my opinions about things. I was a, I was a camera assistant on, on Innocent Blood. I was the low ranking camera assistant on that with like people like Robert Loja and, you know, uh, and Frank Oz was on that and um, just a crazy cast. And, and John Landis would just, uh, would just start telling a story or would like turn, he had this really unique thing. He would just turn to me or someone random on set and just ask them, well, what do you think of that? Like how that looked to you? And he asked me like one day what my favorite movie of his was and I said, uh, I said, Blues Brothers without hesitation. And uh, I remember he went, really? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds just like him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I said, so what, what's your favorite movie of yours? And he said, Into the Night without hesitation. And I like, I remember going home and like, it wasn't as easy to get everything in the world on video at that time. But I remember seeking out Into the Night, which I hadn't seen yet. And uh, he's in it. So maybe that's part of why it was his favorite movie. But uh, um 
but yeah, I, I went on for a little while just spouting back at him about how great I thought uh, the Blues Brothers was and how much, you know, that mix of like comedy and, you know, some higher meaning and stuff. But uh, right. yeah, terrific guy and really like a great a love of film. You, you can just feel it coming out of him when you're talking to him. He, he also just enjoys um, the thrill of making movies. And it was a, you know, it was a, you know, we blew up a bus on a city street in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, and <laughs> had cameras like 20 different angles, blew out all the windows in downtown Pittsburgh, did like a 29 or so car stunt on them, shut down a highway, did a truck stunt coming out of a, out of the Fort Pitt tubes in Pittsburgh, a, a giant tractor trailer truck crashing into cars all over the place yeah jumping off buildings it was that was a that was an education <laughs> no i i bet i bet it was yeah. um and i guess one of my last questions would be um obviously it's very apparent that you're a purveyor of cinema you're such you you've loved it you know since you can recall mm-hmm. um are there any particular scenes in movies that have always stuck with you that you wake up and you say like, Oh fuck. I love this scene. This inspires uh-huh. me to get out of bed and do this. Sure. Sure. There's, there's a whole bunch of them. It's funny. I, uh, um, you know, I, I, I actually saw another one of your interviews where you asked that. And so I, you oh, know, I, I, I made notes just to make sure that I, uh, you know. I should have sent you a pre <laughs> one for that. Cause it catches a lot of people off guard. No, I liked it as a question. And, and the, you know, it's funny, like the, the first one that came to mind was maybe like, it's, it's a little inappropriate, but like, that's, um, I just want to say like everything that's said in the scene is, is of course horrible, but it's the way the scene works that it's the scene in true romance with Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper. And um, I don't know if you've seen the film, Yes. but they only have one scene together. Christopher Walken only has one scene in the movie. And um, it's a, everything that's said in the scene is horrible and racist and terrible. But the thing that blew me away was um, that, you know, sorry for the spoilers here, but if to people that haven't seen it, but um, Dennis Hopper is being interrogated and Christopher Walken tells him at the beginning of the scene, casually in one of his first statements, just thrown into the sentence that he's going to kill him. Um, And so Dennis Hopper's objective in that scene is to not give up where his son and his new daughter-in-law are for their own safety to not get them killed. Mm -hmm. So his, his purpose is to, somehow offend Christopher Walken's character enough as quickly as possible to get him to lose his cool and kill him before interrogating him. And so I loved the fact that it was, it blew my mind that what's being talked about in the scene has nothing to do with what's actually being, what's happening in the scene. It's like a spouting of, of racist invective towards each other. Um, you know, as it's Tarantino, so it's well-written racist invective, but it's, um, the thing that just struck me is that what he's doing is he's trying to beg him or trick him into killing him, murdering him sooner so that he can save his son's life. And none of that is ever said outwardly in the scene. And I love the fact that it's a scene where what's happening is on screen where you have to sort of step back from it as the viewer and recognize that what's going on has nothing to do with it. He's not, he's not being a racist. He's using Christopher Walken's character's racist racist attitudes against him to get him to kill him so that he can save his son's life. And I just thought well, it's a masterpiece of a scene, but the acting of it, the, the directing of it and, and the writing of it. And 
another one is the the stop dave uh i'm afraid dave seen in 2001 in a, in a, the same way in, in that like what's being what's happening is almost the opposite of what you're seeing on the screen you're just watching Pierre delay in 2001 using a key to pull out parts of a computer's hard drive and he's killing pal the computer and it's slow it's poetic it's beautiful every shot is like a painting and what's being what's happening is you're watching a computer beg for his life um yeah. and you're watching that moment of humanity come from the computer when he's you don't know is he using i'm afraid dave to manipulate him into you know because he's been manipulative before that or yep. is he recognizing like a human being like a human intelligence is he recognizing that he that what he has to do is try anything he can to keep from and it's it's one of the coldest um and saddest like murder scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And uh, because it, it takes like 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah the, the sound design is incredible. You're, you yes. know, you're, and everything, you know, and again, if you were watching it and didn't understand what you were uh, seeing, you know, you, you would, it looks like somebody using a key to remove plastic uh, little tiny plastic monoliths from a, uh, from a circuit board. Yeah, and you're looking at an image of a lens with a red light through it, pretending to be a computer, and it was just a reminder, and it was it was always an inspiration that like it's you can you can really intensely use all the elements of cinema to to make the audience feel something that that's much greater than a sum of the parts, if that makes sense. Oh, that scene is so good, especially that they use the Daisy song, because I guess, mm-hmm. is that like the first song from like the first computer that they read out or like the Dot yep. Matrix or something like that, which is yeah, just yeah. genius too. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. so and, good. And the, uh, do you want, I have one more if you want. Yes, yes, let's yeah. do it. I think the the sort of garden party scene in Manchurian Candidate where... Uh, yes, um, Angela Lansbury. Yeah, where, where <laughs> they're where you're not, um, again, what you're seeing isn't exactly what, you know, you have to, the audience has to kind of sort out what they're seeing, where you, you believe you're seeing an old lady's garden party. And as the camera keeps moving around, start to reveal what you're watching is uh, the, hip, the hypno programming of a bunch of soldiers mm-hmm. to, uh, to become assassins and to be heartless assassins and be willing to kill. But, and the, the, you, you know, John Frankenheimer, the director uses just really astonishing editing and writing to get, across that um that the again the thing you're seeing is not exactly what you're being told you're you know when you think at first you think you're for some bizarre reason watching an old lady's garden party and by the end you realize you know that's you're seeing a mix of two different dimensions of reality and the same is true of another favorite the the scenes in twin peaks where i don't want to reveal the you know the big spoilers (laughs) of twin peaks but there are scenes where you're looking at two different realities at once and uh, the audience has to sort of figure out for themselves what's real and what's not. No, oh, yeah, those are excellent scenes. Will be added to that list of the the best scenes in film for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. They're so How good. About you? Do you have what's? Oh, what's... I have I have tons. Let's see. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. Well, of course, you know, shop smart, shop S smart, Army of Darkness. Oh sure. Um, <laughs> the the brilliant simplest silliest joke ever that was concocted 
into a whole scene from Mel Brooks and Spaceballs, which is the asshole joke. I'm surrounded by assholes, but it's yeah. like just how that scene's done is just so good <laughs> to get that one. I'm surrounded by assholes. Um, I love, uh, let's see here. Um, of course, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show meeting Frankenfurter for the first time. The, antis the anticipation of that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, that for sure. Uh, I would have to say, oh, I'm looking at all or some of the movies over here. Um, the, uh, the scene in Glory, uh, the Civil War movie with an sure. incredible cast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, but the scene right before the main battle when they're all singing. And they have to come to terms with they're probably going to die and they're singing how, you know, about their family or, and then it gets to Denzel and you realize you didn't have a family. He loves the 54th. That's his family. That's a powerful mm -hmm. scene. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Teen Wolf, when these waves are mine, <laughs> he gets up on the, <laughs> the wolf gets up on the, on the, uh, the, the van and, you know, yeah. catches waves to mm -hmm. Beach Boys, which is just like a, etched in memory and then you know it's interesting i've asked this question so many times and the most uh the the, the most common answer through with i guess with mostly actors mm -hmm. but a couple of directors have said is the scene in pta's boogie nights mm -hmm. towards the end where you know the vietnamese kids popping the firecrackers they're oh, over yeah. there they doing the drug the deal the, yeah. yeah and there's just so much going yeah. on in that scene yeah. and so many people say that scene is like inspires them. like that's what they want yeah right well and and you're watching uh you know our heroes deadly uncomfortable worried that you know yeah their nerves are shattered already and the firecrackers are making it worse yeah yeah and i'm trying to remember what's the song that's playing in that background oh Not man Sister christian is it yeah is it's it? Sister Christian, absolutely, yeah, Sister yeah. Christian. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's just I like when that when people mention that it's just it's great to me. I, I love that, you know. Um, but yeah, I those scenes. Um, oh, or the planes, trains, and automobiles where um, Steve Martin loses his cool at the uh, car rental place. Oh, right, right. Or yeah. even right. in Matchstick Men when Nicolas Cage has a complete meltdown at the pharmacy is totally. a yeah, yeah, brilliant yeah. piece. Love that film, Ridley Scott. Yeah. No, yeah, and it's, yeah. oh man, it's Nick Cage gold. Mm -hmm. But that yeah, scene, yeah. we've all, I feel like that scene, we've all been there where we have a meltdown <laughs> <laughs> or something like that at the pharmacy and it's just perfect. Have you seen Color Out of Space? Oh yeah, so I yeah, actually saw that, that is, <laughs> is brilliant because he yeah. kind of goes back and forth. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, in the car where he's, ah, you know. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually saw the premiere of that at Fantastic Fest in Austin with um, the director. What's his name? Um, oh, they made a documentary it. about him. That he he was the original guy to do that. Um, Do Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, what's his name? <laughs> oh, you mean the one with Brando? That, that yeah, one? the one with Brando. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the guy that was fired. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That for that movie. <laughs> but he he made Color Out of Night and he was there for it. And so oh. to watch that movie and see Nicolas Cage in that role and have like John Carpenter's The Thing come out of that and just, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, no, I love Color Out of Night. I love Color of Night. It was, that, that was a really good. 
it, to see yeah, Chong yeah. in that movie was excellent. <laughs> yeah, that was oh yeah, and and sort of almost disorienting. Like it's you feel like you've entered another universe in that movie when Chong is in his little trailer down the hill. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My girlfriend and I videotaped just you know, off the screen, just screen grabbed just his little car meltdown when he's sitting in the wheel of the car. And it just it builds from nothing to like I kept joking. I wonder if the director just kept saying afterwards, like a little more. You know, a, a little, <laughs> yeah, just a little more. Can you give me a look? Because it looks like take nine of, of somebody just keeps, you know, saying like maybe just a little more, Nick. Can we have just a, yeah. a little? Because it's he's way, he's way unhinged, and it's great. Turn it to eleven. Turn it to twelve. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like just, maybe just a little more. You know, <laughs> and have have you seen uh, Willy's Wonderland yet? No. Okay. No, is so, that is that the new Nicholas? I think I saw like. Uh, so the new one that's coming out is called Pig. But mm-hmm. the one that came out prior to that is called Willy's Wonderland. It's on demand. It's Nicolas Cage. And it's uh, basically he battles showbiz Chuck E. Cheese and Matronic robots in this demonic uh, fun house, basically. But the catch is, the catch is, is that <laughs> is he catch? has, he, he, yes, there's a catch to this. Um, he's in the whole movie. He has literally zero lines of dialogue. <laughs> Wow. But he's in the whole movie, zero lines of dialogue. And he just he acts wow. with his face. And it's <laughs> amazing. But there's like some great uh, people behind it. Like I know Grant Kramer, who did um, the main guy in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. He produced mm-hmm. it and he's in it. Um, Beth Grant is also in it, who's been in, you know, tons of movies. She was in Child's Play 2, Speed, um, Donnie Darko. Now I got to see you Willie's Wonderland, right? Willie's Wonderland, highly recommend because it's just we talk about Nick Cage, and it's great to see him without any lines, just because it's like, oh wow, what, what's going to happen? And it's you know, you, I describe the plot to you, it's just like, what? What's yeah, gonna happen? Yeah, yeah. I know what I'm in for. Yeah, I'm blanking <laughs> on the other. There's the other completely mind-boggling one from like two years ago. Uh, oh, Mandy. Mandy. Yeah, was like, great, yeah. Mandy is that's another wonderfully unhinged Nick Cage performance and, and just a lot of fun. He's so he's you, you just you definitely know you're never in for a boring experience if he's in the film. You know, he's going to give it 110 percent of that Nick Cage magic, you know. Right, right, right. Oh, this has been so much fun talking with you. We're going to have you on the yeah, show yeah. again. We'll have I you on that. my bloody podcast. Talk about horror. But the spotlight is on you now, Harry. Um, please tell everyone if you want to, in the vein of your best Nick Cage impression, uh, uh, where everyone can find hereafter. Uh, <laughs> I can't do the impression, unfortunately, but I, 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 I'm sorry to disappoint you with that, but I, I will tell you it's, uh, everywhere on demand, I think, uh, and, uh, on, on July 23rd. And then from then on, uh, in like over 40 countries and it'll be in all over North America and the UK and, bunch of other uh, countries and uh and it's also going to be in a few theaters uh starting with the cinema village in manhattan on 12th street on the 23rd we're going to do a uh you know at least a week there and if anyone is i don't know if this will be out by then but um you know it should be easy to find after the 23rd and awesome, um awesome. And can they can, can our listeners find you online are you active on youtube or instagram or twitter uh, I, I am. I don't post much, but I have, you know, my own personal, you know, like Harry Greenberger. I'm easy to find in that way. 
Um, you know, I have Facebook, Instagram. The movie has a Facebook and an Instagram, of course, and and we'll soon have a Twitter, I'm sure. And they have websites like uh, hereafterthemovie.com. And um, and uh, I have a YouTube channel, but there's nothing that exciting on it right now. I guess I should do something more with that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for wanting to do this. I'm 